Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by Kim Kelly, where I ask her, do we care enough about labor organizing? Welcome to Getting Curious. This is Jonathan Van Ness. I'm so excited for this episode. Our guest is incredible. Her name is Kim Kelly. She is a journalist, author, and organizer based in Philadelphia. Her new book, Fight Like Hell, The Untold History of American Labor is an intersectional history of labor movements in the U.S. that centers women, people of color, LGBTQIA plus people, disabled people, sex workers, prisoners, and the poor. Hi, Kim. How are you? Hi, I'm so excited to talk to you and to tell your listeners about the incredible history of this country that they might not know about, but totally deserve to. Okay, we really want to know about that. And also, my kind of guiding question is not only what is the history of like U.S. labor organizing, but more like, do we care enough about labor organizing? And I think that's a really interesting question because it's like, I feel like I don't understand it enough. I feel like I don't care about it enough. I feel like it's because I started off as an independent contractor. So I was always just like, you know, I'm a hairdresser. Like, what am I like? What are we going to do? Like, I don't get it, you know? And your work like really flies in the face of that assumption. So first of all, to just like set the scene in the book, you note that pro-union sentiment in September 2021 was at 68%, the highest it's been since 1965. I think that's really interesting because we saw all of these corporations like quintupling their income as people were losing all of their livelihoods and, and like having such a hard time encountering jobs. And I think that it was a real awakening for people that were like, what gives? What is going on? So what makes this moment so significant for labor organizing? We're living through such a historic moment in working class history in this country and labor history in this country in good ways and in bad ways, right? Like public support is super high and union density is pretty low. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But I love that you mentioned you didn't necessarily think about how unions applied to you or thought that it was something that kind of mattered to your existence as a worker, as an independent contractor. I'm an independent contractor, too. It's a nightmare. There are a lot of different ways to be a worker in this country, right? And there are a lot of ways in which workers who have been the most marginalized, have been the most vulnerable, have had to fight the hardest just to get anywhere, let alone get towards where they need to be. Like, those have always been the folks that have worked the hardest and really pushed us in the the right direction. And we're in a moment where people are interested in unions. They're thinking about them a little bit more because as you said, something's got to give. We're living through this pandemic, essential workers who have always been essential for a brief couple months in 2020. They got paid a little bit more, got a little bit of appreciation. That all went away and they still went to work and people still kept dying and people still kept getting sick. And the tech oligarchs that rule us all kept getting richer. There's this common phrase, thank unions for the weekend, the eight-hour day, for ending child labor, for these big jumps forward. And there's still a lot of work to be done on those fronts. But I think when people understand more about unions, then they're going to want to get involved because unions really are one of the best tools that working class people in this country have to fight for one another. Because, you know, one person on their own, it can be a little tough to get to get what you deserve, to go stand up against your boss, to stand up against the government. But a whole bunch of people who are standing in solidarity with one another and fighting together, that can move mountains. That's what a revolution looks like. So a few years ago, we got to record an episode with Professor Rebecca Givon, who we're obsessed with. It was all about trade unions. But just like for us to refresh, maybe we have new listeners since then, which like, you know, just reminding those folks, honey, we do have a backlog of all these fabulous episodes you can go back through and re-listen to if you want. But that's not the point. The point is, can you remind us what unions are? So, most basic sense, a labor union is an organization of workers dedicated to improving wages, hours, and working conditions within their workplace via collective bargaining. In a lot of cases, they're trying to win a union contract, which is a legal document solidifying those gains and those demands in a, you know, in a contract that the bosses can't mess with. You get it down on paper. 
And other types of unions, like the Industrial Works of the World, IWW, they're a solidarity union. So they concentrate on building worker power and basically getting to a point where the boss is too afraid to mess with you. So you don't even need a contract. There's a bunch of different ways to do it, right? But essentially, a union is a group of workers fighting for one another and trying to make things better. And then how do they work again? There's a whole bunch that goes into making a union do what it's able to do, right? It's a collective, not a single single person running everything. And one of the parts of being a union member is that you pay dues, pay a little bit um, from your paycheck, and that goes to the union so they can keep organizing and providing these services and doing all the stuff you want them to do. The whole thing about dues is unions are able generally to help you negotiate raises and higher salary. So if you have to give them a little bit of money, it doesn't hurt that much because they already helped you get a raise. Again, there's a lot of different unions, a lot of ways to be a union. And there are a lot of established national unions that have offices and field reps and organizers and legal people. But basically, you have a group of people looking out for you. And in return, you just kind of got to show up for your coworkers and give them a couple bucks out of your paycheck to keep the lights on. So... It seems like unions would benefit workers. Is there anyone else who unions benefit? Like, I mean, like their families. Yes, I'm from a union family. I'm third generation. Shout out to the steel workers and operating engineers. My dad, my granddad. Uh, And one of the things that unions do that is very helpful and life saving is that a lot of them provide health care. Like when I was in high school, my mother got very sick and her hospital bills were like over a quarter of a million dollars. Like we could not have afforded that. My dad worked construction. She worked in a kitchen, but he had good union health insurance. So we made it through. My mom made it through. Without the union, I don't like to think about what would have happened. So unions have massive benefits for union members' families and for their communities, right? Because a good union job pays pretty well in the best case. And, you know, you can take those dollars and support local businesses, support local artisans. Like it's all it's all a big community good, right? Being a union lifts up everybody who is in that community. And that's why it's such a good thing that we have some. And I wish we had more, but we can get to that. So with all of like the good that unions can do, like who might not support or recognize a union drive? Well, a lot of big corporations and the people that run those are not fans of unions at all because they give workers power and they require those bosses, whether whether it's a corporation or just a smaller business. Like, you know, when there's someone who's in charge and then people that are working for them and making them all their money, collective bargaining requires them to sit down across the table and hammer out a deal and listen to what the workers need and what they think and kind of just, deal with them person to person without that hierarchy, without that that wall that gets thrown up. And some people in power don't like that. And unions make workers more powerful. And unions generally make companies and corporations like pay better benefits and pay higher wages and like put in, you know, real efforts for diversity and for supporting the workers. Like they make the bosses pay up and bosses don't like that. So I feel like what I do know about unions and I feel like the like, movie depictions of them it's like a lot of like all white men that are like you know a little older um but and one amazing thing that you do in fight like hell your new book which available everyone for purchase so get that but in fight like hell you you work really hard to dispel that and you shine a light on on the history of diversity within unions can you kind of briefly give us a little like peek at some of the um, labor leaders in your book Oh, there's so many. I was really excited to write about Baird Rustin, who is a queer Black man who was basically the architect behind the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He did all the logistics and the organizing because he had that background. But because he was an out queer man, even within his circles, some of the people he worked with were uncomfortable with that. And they kind of pushed him to the side. And they even debated whether or not to get him involved at all, even though he knew the most about what was happening. I think it was actually Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who stood up for him and was like, look, he knows what he's doing. We need him. And he's the reason that it was such a big success and such a historically massive moment. Um, I think about Lucy Parsons, one of my favorites. She's she's what more well-known in like radical circles because she was definitely a radical. In eight, late 1880s in Chicago, she was this anarchist firebrand who also was a seamstress by trade and organized dressmakers and helped found the IWW, the Industrial Works of the World. So she crossed a couple different 
of different streams there in terms of organizing the workers. And she was so like feared and revered that the Chicago police described her as more dangerous than a thousand rioters. That is Mm. like, how can you beat that? Maria Marino, uh, an indigenous and Latina farm worker in California who was one of the first, I think she was the first uh, woman to be hired as an organizer for the precursor to the United Farm Workers. Or even I talk about Marsha P. Johnson, who obviously an icon in you know the LGBTQIA space as you know a trans icon, but she also was involved in sex work and she supported other sex workers in her community and she provided mutual aid and resources. Like that is work, that is labor. She was a labor leader too. And being able to show those intersections and talk about these folks and pull them all together under this umbrella and show like, okay. These folks are also part of other movements. They have other identities, other intersections happening there, but they're also part of the labor movement and they're part of this history. And it's really important that we understand that the labor movement has never been just the white guy in the hard hat or holding a baton, but, and he's there and, you know, he's done a lot of good work, except the ones with batons, but so many other people have been here since the very beginning. And the only reason we've gotten this far is because of their sacrifice and their struggle. That first person that you mentioned, that nice beard, that queer black man who was friends with Martin Luther King. So I'm guessing um, that he was uh, like doing his work in like the 50s and 60s. Oh, yeah. He had such an interesting history because there's another labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, who formed the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, incredibly important early uh, all black union. And when Baird Rustin was younger, he had gone to visit A. Philip Randolph and was like, hey, I want to I want to help out. And that was in like the 40s. But at that time, uh, Baird was also involved with the Communist Party. Like he was a young, like firebrand. He was involved in really radical things. And Philip Randall was like, "Mm, I'm not really down with that. Maybe come back later when you've calmed down a little bit. He became more involved in um, the civil rights movement. He was involved uh, in the Congress for Racial Equality. He was part of the Freedom Rides. Like he organized against, you know, segregationist policies in prison. And he defended Japanese Americans who had been interned by the U.S. government in the late 40s, like around World War II. Like he was very involved in a lot of different struggles that he saw as interconnected because they were. He became very involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They're the ones that organized the March on Washington. They came up with the idea. And Baird, he had all that experience. He had all of that prior understanding of how these intersections work, how to plan a big event, how to make sure the porta potties are there, you know, like that nitty gritty organizing stuff that not at like a lot of people are good at big picture, but you need the small picture too to really get stuff done. And yeah, he had a really fascinating life. There's a lot of really great books about him. And I was really glad I got to include him because like, he is just such a fascinating figure that everybody should know. We should have Baird Rustin Day, and we don't. But maybe somebody important will read this and, and make it happen. And when was the March on Washington? When did that happen? 1963, the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. So in some of those examples, Lucy Parsons is, I think, the earliest one that of the examples that you gave, like the 1880s. <laughs> what were some of the most pivotal moments like in history for like labor unions? One of the big ones, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire, that was in 1911. That was one of like just the most awful tragedies in labor history. 146 people died because the owners of this factory, which manufactured shirtwaist, which was very common women's garments in that period, they... There was a fire. It caught fire. There was lots of dust and fabric scraps. It was not ventilated. It was not a safe working environment by any any stretch of the imagination. And the factory owners locked the doors because they were afraid that workers would steal fabric scraps because, God forbid, someone comes home with a little bit of cotton in their pocket. I'm in New York City right now, and I went and visited the, the site. It's right by Washington Square Park. There's a plaque. You can see it. That's an interesting one to talk about, too, because it was one of the first ones that really got public attention in a really visceral way because we had photography. There were reporters on the scene. It was in the middle of New York, so people saw what was happening. And most of the victims were young women, predominantly immigrant women, uh, Jewish, Eastern European, and Italian women, some as young as 14. So there were kids there too. And that pulled at the public's heartstrings in the way that perhaps mining disasters or other factory mishaps hadn't. And one of the most important things that came out of that horrible tragedy was the fact that Frances Perkins, 
this young woman who was about my age at the time. She was working for the uh, like the uh, consumer protection agency kind of thing as a secretary. And that totally just shook her to her core. And she decided like, okay, I need to spend the rest of my life fighting for workers' rights. And she did. She became the first the first female cabinet member ever, and definitely the first um, female labor secretary under FDR, she was the big reason that we got the New Deal. She was behind the Social Security. She like she was just incredible. She did so much important work. And it was because she was there and she heard those screams and she smelled that burning flesh. And she said, OK, this cannot stand. Something needs to happen. And there are a lot of moments like that throughout history. But that one really like I'm feeling that because I just saw the plaque and just like... It's, it's so visceral, you know, like our history is so bloody and beautiful and brutal. And that's what I tried to get across in the book. Like, it's not just facts and figures. It's not just, you know, research. It's not just whatever acronym, whatever union did this. It's like, it's the people that struggled and died and bled to get us here. And I'm I'm kind of going off on an emotional tangent at this point because I, I feel this stuff so much. But yeah, the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, I hope everybody, well, anybody who hadn't heard about that, I hope that they can learn more about it in the book and learn more about it on their own because that was really a catalyst for so much. And so it sounds like in the 1700s, like 1800s, it's about like workplace safety and wages, but it's like, I mean, I feel like you don't hear about nowadays like 140 people like burning to death in a, you know, in a factory? Or is it that we've always been fighting for like safer working conditions, better wages, like it's just in different forms? That's the thing. We have made so many advances. Technology has improved. We have like, uh, we have safety regulations. We have OSHA. We have, progress has been made, but there are still garment factory workers in Los Angeles, for example, who are predominantly Asian and Latina immigrants who are working in these dusty, fabric-filled, poorly ventilated, sometimes locked buildings. And it's almost like, have we learned nothing? And I don't think it's that people haven't learned anything. I think it's that the people in power still just don't really care because, you know, to some people, workers' lives don't matter that much when there's profit to be had. I mean, that's why Jeff Bezos can go to space and Amazon workers are coming home with carpal tunnel or dying on the job. It's everything old is new again, right? Like we're living through a new Gilded Age. And even as much progress has been made, thanks to the efforts of the working class and to these incredible organizers and fighters and revolutionaries, we still have so much further to go. Mm. It's like a two steps forward, five steps back, three steps forward, five steps like because it's like as the yeah. working class and unions like work to get more. It's like that upper like Elon Muskie, Jeff Bezos, mm. like upper one percent keeps working to like raise the ceiling, too. So it's like that gap kind of stays yes. quite gappy because it's not like that upper echelon is like stopping progressing in their like ever never ending like you know quest for more like when you really get into that like billions and billions of billions like when you can have like two private 747s like oh Kardashian God. times two money how do <laughs> A you yacht like for your yacht <laughs> you know what I yeah 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 like it's like and like so I don't even mean like because I feel like Kardashians are like rich as fuck but then them compared to someone who has like that Musk money, like, you know, 44 that's, billion. That's not even real. That's just fake. Like 44 billion. Like you can literally like there's no, like you can buy fucking Twitter. You could end world hunger. And that too. That too, which is even more important. But I'm just saying, but like, but shit, like that's fucking crazy that someone has so much money because they got all the people that work for Twitter, honey. Who desperately need a union? I can hook y'all up if you know anybody. But like, yeah, the people, like the people create that value. The people create that profit for them. Elon Musk sits around and like tweets all day and does like nefarious shit. Who knows what he gets up? Yeah, to, like but does he, he even know how to like like to fucking like hardwire computer? I bet he can't change a tire. <laughs> I, I, bet I can. He, I can change a tire. But I um, believe you. <laughs> but I can't do a computer. Like, I couldn't. Like, I mean, I don't even know how to. Like, I mean, I couldn't. It's like, I mean, I could maybe if I really had. But this is not the point. So, wait. <laughs> okay. So, but basically, like, 
so for as someone who's like researched the history of labor unions and you're like a labor journalist, like, and you've done a lot of research on this, like, is there any like main definitive, like three eras of labor organizing that we need to know about just as people who like haven't been researching it? Or like, if you're trying to explain this to your parent later and you're like, oh, there was like the industrial revolution union age. And then there was the like mid 1900s phase of course and now there's the new gilded age of course darling or is it not really like that it's kind of just like the literal same struggle in different variances for like 300 years there have definitely been ebbs and flows like when union power has been higher when there's been more wild shit going on like early 1900s we saw these gigantic general strikes and this massive organizing and a lot of violence and that's when the uprising of the 20,000 happened in new york city which uh, it was a bunch of immigrant garment workers, young women who shut down New York. In a violent way? Did they all go beat the hell out of everybody? They did. The cops beat the hell out of them. Oh. Speaking of history repeating itself. God damn. <laughs> yeah, they love that. They've been out here the whole time. But <laughs> the cops love breaking strikes and breaking workers. But yeah, that's a constant. Which is interesting because they love their own union. Right, yeah, hard quotes around their unions. Really throughout the book, so many like important struggles and important strikes and important organizers have been stymied or cut down or straight up murdered by the police. Like there's people in this book, like there is one person that I hope more people learn about because he was really wonderful and he gave everything. Uh, a young man who's a Yemeni immigrant named Nagi Daifula, 24 years old. He got involved with the United Farm Workers uh, during the Salable strike uh, in the 70s, right after the massive uh, Delano Grape boycott and strike that happened on there in the 60s. And he was he was so excited to help. He was an organizer. He worked as a translator because there were a lot of Yemeni farm workers in the area as well as Latino farm workers. And, you know, I had to keep everybody posted. One day during that strike, he and a group of striking workers were hanging out, I think, in front of a convenience store or something like that. And the cops came by and started hassling them. And Nagi stood up for them. He said, you know, leave them alone. We're not doing anything. We, you would do it for your friends. And the cops responded by cracking his skull and dragging him across the concrete and leaving him to bleed out. And he was 24 years old and he was sticking up for his friends. And just stories like that, they make me, they make me so mad. They make me see red. And I, I want more people to know about things like that too, because really... The, the government, the, the state, the long arm of the law has generally not been on our side. They've been on the side of capital and property. And, you know, in terms of class war, they're definitely not on our side. And it's it's important for us to know the uglier parts of this, too, and the more violent parts, too, because there is a lot at stake. And some people have already given everything to get us where we're at now. Which is interesting, and it leads me into my next question, because we've talked about, like, civil asset forfeiture on here quite a few times. I'm really passionate about that. For instance, it's affected, like, friends of mine, and I just think it's, like, such an interesting, like, un-American thing that happens all day, every day in all 50 states. And, like, it's just, like, if you get pulled over and a cop says they smell weed or thinks that you're on something, they can just, like, take everything from you and just say that it came from drugs. And it's like, if you get pulled over at like the wrong time of day and you're just like moving or whatever, or like that cop just doesn't like you. Like they just have so much broad discretion to like fuck up your life. And mm-hmm. then Republicans historically are so pro-police, but it's interesting to me that Republicans seem really anti-union, but then a lot of the conservative, conservative ones say they're pro-union, but I feel like their voting record doesn't support that. What's the history of that dynamic? Reagan was the only president who was in a union, wasn't he? <laughs> right. Reagan, this may he continue to burn in hell. Reagan is the only president who has been a union member. He was the president of his union at one time, SAG-AFTRA, which represents um, actors and, and screen folk, mostly in Hollywood. And Reagan is a huge reason why organized labor has been in a downswing since before I was born, back going back to uh, 1981, when there was an air traffic controller strike, uh, PACO strike. And he basically busted the hell out of it. He fired everyone. He blackballed them. He ruined these people's lives. And that has such a massive impact on the movement and on what companies thought they're able to get away with, because 
up until that point, you know, unions were such an established part of just the fabric of American life and the workplace that, you know, the the corporations and bosses didn't really like them. But the relationship, like modern relationship, we're not talking about the Battle of Blair Mountain. It wasn't necessarily as like viciously adversarial as it has become. But when Reagan did that, he kind of cleared the runway if you will, of that for companies to crack down even harder and to hire replacement workers. That wasn't really as much of a thing in, in modern sense at that point. Like usually when striking workers came back to work, their jobs were there. So they were risking a lot, but they weren't risking everything. But after that, companies started bringing in tons of scabs and really just adopted a very anti-union posture. And the GOP, the Republicans, they've held that close to their little bosoms And they've tried every trick they can come up with to break unions and weaken the labor movement and move more power and capital to the capitalist class, to the bosses, to the corporations, to the people that they get along with, that support them, that do what they want. I mean, one of the reasons it's so hard to join a union in this country, uh, there's these, they're called right to work laws, which is already a misnomer. It's more like right to to get screwed but these right to work laws that they make it much they they weaken unions they make it harder for unions to build power they they've been passed all over the country there's like especially in the midwest and the deep south and the republicans are all over that that's their favorite thing killing off labor killing off unions but then at the same time they talk out of the other side of their mouth by saying oh we're here for the workers we're here for the working class we're blue collar what are the right to work laws So right to work laws basically make it so that in a unionized shop, workers can opt out of paying dues. And that makes it harder for unions to, you know, to build power and to represent people fully because the unions will still represent those workers, but they're kind of just getting a free ride. And in places where union density is kind of lower, you can enjoy the benefits of a union without paying anything in. It's not really fair. And it makes it harder for unions to keep afloat and to stay strong. And if unions aren't strong, they aren't able to effectively bargain with the employers and get good contracts for their workers. It's it's kind of turned into a political thing, too. Like Republicans and people who are kind of on that side of the fence, hating unions and loving the protections, but not wanting to support them because there's this idea that unions are all these like magical, progressive bastions and that it's a fully lefty thing. It's like all Democrats. And that's not really the case. Unions are not a monolith. Labor movement is not a monolith. There's a lot of conservative union folks and conservative unions. If you're kind of looking around in the building trades or like the border guards or even the police, like that's, it doesn't get much more conservative than that. So it's, there's a lot going on there. But one thing that always grinds my gears is when Republicans try to say that they're for workers and the working class and for blue collar people while doing everything in their power to screw us over. How have Democrats fallen short of protecting workers? Mm. There, I mean, the fact that the federal minimum wage is still seven twenty five, that is that is just a crime. The fact that when even when Democrats are in power, they seem well, a lot of them seem very incapable of pushing legislation that actually helps workers. The One of the, the biggest disappointments in the in a legislative sense that we've seen in probably in my lifetime is um, the, the PRO Act. That was something that labor was really excited about. It would have made it easier to unionize. It would have done a lot of good for work in this country and cleared out a lot of red tape and really, really helped out. And it seemed like for a second we might have gotten there. And then a couple Democratic senators were like, no. We're not going to vote for this. When was that? That I think that was last year, right? The PRO Act. Because mm. it was part of the Build Back Better Act. Oh. So I think it's still kind of in limbo. It's still like the Joe Manchin, Kristen Cinema, like gruesome twosome situation, keeping working people from getting anything good in this country. And I mean, I'm not a big fan of either political party. I'm not like a electoral guy. I don't think we're ever going to get anywhere depending on those kinds of people. I think any power... And any progress that we get is going to come from the grassroots. It's going to come from the rank and file, from the people, because that's how it's always been. You know, the government has been useful in some cases by passing labor laws and regulations and, you know, uh, creating National Labor Relations Board or OSHA. But it's also screwed us over a whole lot. Like a whole lot. There's a lot of historical precedents, whether it's, you know, uh, important labor laws leaving out groups of workers or 
the government sending in troops to bust up strikes. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of ugly history there, too. And you can't trust them. Yeah. As an HIV positive queer person, I have like a lot of reason to like distrust the government. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, even in 2020, we had like 50 something percent turnout. It was like 175 million turned out out of like 330. And if more people understood the power of unions, for instance, or like the PRO Act, we would have, I think that workers would send a stronger mandate to Washington, D.C. than, you know, a tied Senate with one tie-breaking vote. Like, really, we need 60 senators. And like, how do we get there? We just need to figure out how to coalesce because it really is workers, it's working class, it's queer people. We do need to figure out like a way for us to work better and like find our hope. And I know that we can because it's like our past doesn't have to dictate our future, but we have to like find a way for us to like come together. It's just, it's just so stressful. I'm like, she's worried <laughs> about stressful. midterms. It's, it's coming out. That's why I wrote this book to show people like, look at all the cool shit we've done and all the incredible victories we've notched and all these difficult fights that we fought. Like we are so powerful and we're made to feel like we aren't. And that is, uh, that's just the biggest trick of all, right? That's the greatest trick the devil ever pulled, trying to convince the working people that we don't have any power in that. We just have to pull ourselves up our bootstraps and get ours. Like it's whenever people followed that kind of thinking, like that's how you fail. That's how we get ourselves into these terrible situations. When people come together and embrace solidarity, that's how that's how we win. I wish we had more labor education in schools. Like when I was growing up, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, so I didn't really I didn't learn that much in general. I was a nerdy kid who went to the library and that's kind of how I ended up here. But I feel like if kids in schools learned about people like like Dolores Huerta or Mother Jones or Barrett Rustin, Marsha P. Johnson, Maria Marino, like all of the incredible people that I write about and so many more out there that, you know, brilliant scholars and archivists and historians have unearthed and preserved. Like if we knew who we were and who we are, I feel like we would have so much of an easier time grabbing hold of that power and really just understanding like, oh, wow, like the working class has so much potential and power and there's so many more of us than there are of them. Like maybe we actually can get some shit done. So let's talk about how we've done that in the past. Can you tell us about how often workers advocating for themselves got protections passed and then the government came in and like made that status quo afterwards. So like the black washerwomen in Atlanta leading their strike pre-voting rights, for instance. If people are interested, um, an academic named Dr. Tara Hunter wrote a really great book about it called To Enjoy My Freedom. And she really goes into that history in detail. But in the book, I mention about how in 1881, which is less than a lifetime after emancipation, washerwomen in Atlanta, Georgia, who were doing this incredibly difficult, dirty, brutal work. Like at that point, we didn't have washing machines. We didn't have, you know, the spin cycle. We had just this pummeling day long slog through other people's dirty clothes. And black women had very few options at the time for, you know, to enter the workforce because of racism, misogynoir, pick a pick an oppression, you know, and that's what these workers were dealing with. And they kind of had the market cornered on this particular business. And they realized like, okay, well, we're not making enough money. We're, our, our labor isn't being appreciated. These white folks are exploiting us. We're, we need to standardize prices. We need to make a little bit more money because the city cannot run without us. And it just so happened that uh, there's this big event coming up, like uh, the Cotton Exposition. A bunch of Northern businessmen and fancy people are going to come hang out in Atlanta and talk about the future of the South. And one of the one of the lines that the Southern businessmen were trying to trot out as a to you know bring in some more money and some interest was that you know the workers that they were dealing with, the Black folks, were were docile, were easy to work with, and the washerwomen were like, "Okay, you think so." And basically, they threatened to strike before this big event. And there are a lot of hotels and a lot of boarding houses and a lot of people and a lot of sheets. And they could have totally just blown up the whole thing. And honestly, history is a little bit murky on what specifically happened. But them showing that power and them organizing and very publicly saying, like, we're worth so much more than this. And I think you're underestimating how powerful we are. That set a really important precedent. And that was back in the 1880s. Mm. Like, that was 
That was a while ago. Before voting rights? Before, way before voting rights. Yeah. I mean, one of, one of my other favorite people in the book, Dorothy Lee Bolden, she was organizing in the 1960s, also in Atlanta. She was a domestic worker. And I think she uh, lived a few doors down from Dr. Martin Luther King. And he helped encourage her to get involved in organizing because she was like, again, like most of the domestic workers in the city are black women. I've grown up in that community. This work is really hard. We're underpaid. We're treated poorly. Like our labor isn't really being treated, being treated as a profession. And we need to change that. So she organized the National Domestic Workers Union. And at at its peak, they had about 10,000 members, which is a huge deal. She was an incredible organizer. And one of the the, the stipulations for joining, you had to pay a dollar to, to join and you had to register to vote. You had to show you had to show up with your voter registration, then you could join. And she later became like very involved in the fight for voting rights. She became, you know, civil rights icon. Like she was part of that whole milieu. But I just think it was so just incredible that she just pulled together those two thoughts. Like we need to be treated properly and we need to be able to vote. We need to exercise our voice within the workplace and on a, uh, you know, on a wider scale too. Yeah. So shout out to Dorothy Lee Bolton. <laughs> love Dorothy Lee Bolden. And then because we love queer history so much, we're like huge fans of it. I'm getting curious ofs. Um, there was a lot of cool intersections between how LGBTQI plus labor advocacy uh, intersected in this history. So can you tell us about like the Marine Cooks and Stewards Union and their uh, direct shows and musicals, please? Oh, my God. They were so sick. They had this whole tagline. It was like, uh, no red baiting, no race baiting, no queen baiting. Because this was a union, the Marine Cooks and Stewards. It was folks who worked on cruise ships, like taking care of guests and working the kitchen, you know, making making things run. And at first it was a very white union and it didn't let black or Asian workers join because racism, discrimination, all of those fun things that kind of ran the labor movement for a really long time. Uh, it wasn't until the 30s that that integrated and it kind of something that happened that was really interesting was that the leaders realized okay like this isn't this isn't going to work like we're the assholes here and they shook up their leadership and it became like a predominantly black and then black and asian union very radical a lot of communists a lot of lefty thought going on in there and it was a very militant union. And it was also just a really joyously queer union. A lot of the men involved were gay. And one of the, one of the things they would do was to raise money for union benefits by putting on drag shows and musicals and bringing that creative part of themselves out in a way to benefit their, their broader labor worker community. Um, there was there's this one person, Manuel Cabral, who worked as a janitor, and he went by the name the Honolulu Queen, and mm-hmm. he decorated the Union Hall with flowers and hung up curtains. You know, he he was just one of those vibrant characters, like a militant union man, and also the Honolulu Queen, who and both sides of himself and both sides of so many people were able to be present and accepted and valued in this union. And it's really, it's a story that there's not a ton known about. There's this one person, um, Alan Berube, he was a pioneering social historian. He really did a lot of documenting of this union because they didn't really last that long. You know, the fact that so many, uh, so many members were radicals or communists, like that got a little tough later on and they didn't have a ton of support in the rest of the labor movement. Can you tell us about the chorus thing when all the gay bars stop serving chorus? That is a really interesting example of what can happen when a union is smart and reaches across different lines and like really interacts with different communities. So in the broadest strokes, there was there's a dispute between the Teamsters, like the local Teamsters, think local eight, 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 eight and course. Because like the contract negotiation had broken down. That's something that happens when you're trying to negotiate a contract. Sometimes uh, the bosses don't want to play a ball. And sometimes you got to play a little hardball. And so there's strikes breaking out. And there's also this boycott. And the important thing about the boycott was that obviously it's the Teamsters and like the people in the labor movement that supported them were on board. But they also wanted to reach out to other communities because the Teamsters members were pretty white at that point And their reputation wasn't great. They, I mean, the Teamsters have a very colorful history, as I'm, I'm sure most people know. But at that point, they were trying to reach out to, like, uh, the Black and Chicano and Arab community and try to get some more support from them for the boycott, especially because a lot of the the folks who owned liquor stores and distributors were, you know, were not white people and were coming from those communities. They wanted to get them to, to get involved. 
And they realized, okay, we need to hire new organizers and really show these communities they can trust us and that we're not just trying to, you know, capitalize on this. We're not going to use them. Like we want them to help us make things better for everyone. Because the thing about cores is they had these really discriminatory hiring policies, like super racist. And they also had this whole this whole section in their kind of like questionnaire screening potential employees. Uh, where they wanted to screen out quote unquote subversive elements, which in at that point meant queer folks. So they're actively making sure that they wouldn't hire queer workers. And that's how the gay community got involved. Because first of all, fuck that. Like that is a labor issue and a queer rights issue. And it kind of became this bigger campaign for a couple of decades. Like once the gay community got on board, so Alan Baird, one of the organizers that was involved with the whole boycott, he was close with Harvey Milk, obviously iconic mayor of uh, a gay politician at that point. I'm not sure he was mayor yet, but he got on board and the local gay bars, they got on board. And it was just this really beautiful moment of solidarity between all of these different types of workers in different communities. And I think, I mean, that boycott lasted for a really long time. Like I still... I don't know how many gay bars, at least in San Francisco, would sell cores at this point just because of that history. And I mean, it's not great beer anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's that, that's a really interesting like uh, confluence between these different communities that might have felt like they were at odds or didn't have much in common, but realized, oh, OK, like we're uniting against this common enemy, this racist, like anti-gay, just discriminatory company that's making all this money okay, well, we're going to do something about that. We're going to try and hit that bottom line. We're going to do it together. So in the book, you quote this agricultural organizer in California who said, better to go to hell with your family than to heaven by yourself. How have marginalized workers in history said, screw it and organized anyways? And also how have labor leaders fallen short of recognizing uh, their power? Mm. Well, there's, a, oh, there's so many examples I'm thinking of. In terms of labor leaders falling short, there is a really kind of ugly history there too, because as much as we want the labor movement to be this progressive force, and there are a lot of really great progressive and radical people within it, earlier on, especially in the earlier days, that was not so much the case. I mean, I think about in 1882, the Chinese Exclusion Act, which was this horribly racist, xenophobic law that was passed that essentially prevented Chinese workers from emigrating here. The American Federation of Labor, which was an earlier like labor group, they were all on board. They were big supporters because they thought, oh, well, these workers are going to come here and take jobs from our members. And that sounds kind of familiar, right? Like we've seen right. that rhetoric pop up over and over, whether it was at that point Chinese workers or earlier on it was black workers. It still Latino. is now. Yeah, it's Latino. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah. like the same rhetoric. And that is something that has popped up in the labor movement because there's this idea of like new people coming and taking our members jobs instead of realizing, oh, like new people coming in that we can organize that can become our members. Like, duh. Like That is still kind of a, a mental leap for even some leaders today, it's ridiculous. But in terms of workers who kind of organized outside of, outside of and in spite of all this, 1866, the Washerwomen of Jackson, one year post-emancipation, they formed Mississippi's first labor organization by being like, okay, like we need higher wages, we need respect. Like they, they started that ball rolling and there weren't any labor unions there for them. It's like with, um, the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, A. Philip Randolph's joint. Like that was at a time when black workers were not welcome in the majority, if not all, white-led unions. It was kind of an anomaly for a big chunk of the early labor movement for unions to be integrated, for them to be interracial. I mean, there are some outliers like in uh, the 1910s, this incredible black organizer named Ben Fletcher helped organize a union of dock workers in the docks in Philly, where I live, that was made up of black and Irish workers that were like, they ran the show for almost a decade and they were really radical. And that was a great precedent too, but that was a little bit of an anomaly. And in terms of more modern organizing, I think about sex worker organizing because this is, again, workers in the labor movement who have not necessarily been welcomed into the more traditional or organized uh, structures. And as a lot of sex workers are independent contractors, they're carved out of labor laws. And there's all of these different factors that are kind of 
making it more difficult for sex workers to organize already, let alone just survive and pay their bills and just get through the day. But the fact that sex workers have been so ingenious and creative and militant in their organizing anyway, whether they're doing it with the traditional labor movement, like we saw in the lusty lady in the 90s who organized, or even the the folks with Strippers United right now on strike in North Hollywood, uh, shout out to them. They've been out there for a couple of weeks uh, outside the Star Garden. Go show up and give them some love. Like they're, this community of workers have had everything thrown at them and every part of the DAC stacked against them. And they've still been organizing for like centuries and they're going to keep doing it, whether or not they're accepted or supported by the mainstream labor movement. But it is a huge flaw and a huge mistake that the modern labor movement isn't all in 100 percent on supporting and advocating and organizing sex workers, because if we're not organizing and supporting the most marginalized and most vulnerable, then what are we even doing? Why are we even here? You know, I was actually going to ask you about the sex work chapter because it's fascinating. And part of that is, as you say, is a massive U.S. worker misclassification problem. Mm. And that comes down to the whole like employees versus independent contractor thing. So can you explain to us like how that creates um, a gap from the Fair Labor Standards Act? Yeah. So there are a couple of different types of workers excluded from that law, which is kind of like the big law in the States that, you know, enshrines workers' rights to collectively bargain. So independent contractors are cut out because I guess we technically count as small businesses, which is as someone who is a freelance journalist, business is not a way I would describe myself, especially when it comes to paying taxes. And also domestic workers and agricultural workers were originally cut out and remain cut out of that law because at that time, those professions were predominantly black women and black men. And the Southern lawmakers who kind of needed to be persuaded to pass that law, they insisted on a carve out, cutting those workers out because God forbid they have the right to organize. But in terms of independent contractors and employee misclassification, it, we're at a moment where the, this whole idea of gig work has taken over so many different industries. And there are so many people who are doing jobs that clearly are employees of those companies. Like an Uber driver works for Uber, like a delivery driver works for that app, that company. Freelance writers that write consistently for certain outlets or work on contract in the media industry or video games or any of these different tech roles, like you're clearly working for that company, but because you're classified as an independent contractor, you don't have the right to organize. There's so many different rights that you're denied and employers don't have to treat you as well. And you get hard, hit harder with taxes and you're kind of left on your own, even though you're clearly doing this labor that should qualify. You should be getting that W-2. But because of this law, because of the way that employers have been able to exploit it, it's, it's made it so much harder for folks because work itself is continuing to evolve. There's a lot of different ways to have a job, a lot of different ways to be involved with the company, a lot of different ways to, you know, to make your daily bread. And our labor laws are kind of antiquated and they haven't caught up yet. And this is why, like, we've seen all these massive fights, um, especially in California, uh, with companies like Uber and Lyft and a couple of those other, like, big, scary tech ones, like, pouring millions of dollars into legislation that makes it easier for them to keep the drivers and the people that work for them from organizing, from accessing those benefits, trying to keep them as independent contractors instead of employees. Because if someone is your employee, you you owe them certain things. And if it's just some some person you hired, you can get away with murder. Mm. So, uh, um, and then also like, how are incarcerated people excluded from the Fair Labor Standards Act? Mm, so they didn't even get a chance. <laughs> so my research in the the chapter on incarcerated workers was so eye-opening to me because even as someone who, you know, is very interested in that whole world and has friends who are incarcerated, is very, you know, very involved with abolitionist work and abolitionist theory, like I hadn't quite realized how much overlap there had been between incarcerated workers and the traditional labor movement. Because at one time, especially in the 1970s, there were a bunch of unions within prisons popping up and some of them were affiliated with like existing unions. Like those relationships were being built. And it was a really interesting time, especially given the context of the Black Power Movement and the Brown Power Movement and the Prisoners' Rights Movement. They're all kind of swirling around the same time. The North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union was a big one. Really, they got the shaft in a really brutal way that impacted generations of other workers because 
uh, the the people that ran the prison did not think that the workers should be organizing. They didn't think they had the right. And they took they took it to the courts and a lot of different things happened. But essentially, in 1977, the Supreme Court ruled on the Jones versus North Carolina Prisoners Labor Union. And essentially, they said that incarcerated workers do not have the right to join or organize a union. They just they just don't, even though there are people in this country who are working jobs in and making money for other people and sometimes being paid a little bit like cents an hour or in a lot of other um, a lot of states like nothing they are not allowed they don't count it's like and, it's crazy it's like it's like and because our justice system is like that it is it's like how many innocent people are incarcerated right. or incarcerated for some like bullshit weed or like crime of survival like just you know it's just it's that is that is like that is a really that's a really intense one, and it's like a way that yes. like to dehumanize people so intensely. It is, and prison labor is such big business. Like these workers, huge. Generate I mean, they so make much so much profit. money, so yeah. much money, and they're paid like cents in the dollar. Or you think about the incarcerated firefighters in California who are risking their lives and then are barred from being firefighters afterwards. Like I think there's some legislation that might be either in the works or very recently has tried to rectify some of that, but like. Just, just, but that's like another way that we need to be smarter as like people or like, like for people to organize against like fucked up things. Cause like, why don't we boycott the fuckers who make the beds or like the metal or something? No new metal 2022 or something. <laughs> like, you know, like who do we have to boycott to like hit those families? Who are those fucking families that are having all of those incarcerated people do all that work and then they get rich as fuck? Like, where are like the modern day Gilded Age fucks? Cause I mean, even as much as I love their outfits in the show. Like their outfits probably aren't even that cute anymore. You know what I'm saying? Because they're all like modern. Who are those fuck? We note to self, get team getting curious. We need to do an uh, investigative report on who are these fucks investing in prison. Well, the government's a big one. Like, cause they're the ones who are investing in like the hopeful downfall of people. Cause like you have to hope that people are gonna like do something fucked up to imprison them. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and it's such a direct continuation. Like, one of the gnarliest things is that so many people are incarcerated now and they're working and they're generating profit. This go- There's such a precedent for that. Like, in the book I go into a little bit, this price is called convict leasing. That, and, like, slavery. Yeah, yeah, it's literally all the same. Like, 13th Amendment, what's up? Like, it's everything old is new again, like I said. Like, it's prison slavery never ended, right? And a lot of people are making a lot of money off of it. Yeah, because especially like the thing for me, it's like especially it's like it's like the crime of survival and or like the falsely and like the innocent that are incarcerated, which ends up being like a lot of people, like a lot of people end up in there like it's like, okay, this is me focusing. No, one of my best friends was in Rikers as I was writing the book and he helped organize a strike because him and the, the men in his dorm were not getting any PPE or like soap or any basic necessities in the very beginning, the worst of the pandemic. This stuff is so personal to so many people. He shouldn't have been there. Nobody should be there, honestly. But that's a that's a bigger conversation, right? But right. it just comes down to the that whole thing of people being treated like robots or machines. So we just saw that fierce guy and that works for Amazon successfully like yes. unionize. Chris Smalls. Yes, Chris Smalls. We love him. So like, what's like the current state of labor organizing in the US? Like, I feel like that was a big win. Like, are people like more excited and fired up now? They really are. It is so incredible to see this excitement and this optimism and the enthusiasm. I think there's a lot of factors that got it to this point, but even just talking about Amazon, Amazon Labor Union, Chris Smalls and Derek Palmer, and the fact that they, they were engaged in this David versus Goliath fight and they won. Like, yes, they're going to have to bargain a contract. It's going to keep getting harder. Like, this is the first shot across the bow, but they're the first ones to take on these like gigantic company. Like Jeff Bezos, his little space cowboy, he's shaking his little cowboy boots. And I think the fact that we're seeing organizing at Starbucks and even at the Apple store and REI and with graduate student workers and media workers and with Starbucks, Starbucks is a big one because much like we saw at the Amazon Labor Union, Staten Island, that's being led basically by the workers and the workers are on average, like younger and like queer and trans and black and brown, like it's the these workers who are much more marginalized, who are coming from these backgrounds where they've kind of been knocked down and, and beaten up. And they're realizing, like, oh, well, if there's enough of us that do this and stand up against these giant corporations, like we can get somewhere like we can win. Yeah. And that's I think that's that's fueling a lot of the energy and the enthusiasm because 
like ever most people know Amazon, most people know Starbucks, most people know they're these giant like just the you know octopi with their little tentacles all up in our lives and seeing people successfully take them on like that makes you think oh well why can't I talk to my boss why can't I talk to my coworkers like if they can do it maybe I can too and they totally can we totally can I love that story okay so how did you get into becoming a labor reporter and writer so I had uh, definitely an unorthodox path into being a labor writer because I spent most of my life in the music industry as like a heavy metal journalist and promoter and like touring merch person. Like, yeah, my life is heavy metal for basically the whole time. That's why I'm like covered in tattoos and stuff. But um, the what changed that was that I was working at Vice as the heavy metal editor in, uh, in 2015 and we unionized. Uh, the editorial employees, like there's about 80 of us, we got together and we unionized with the Writers Guild of America East. And that changed everything because I ended up in every meeting and every bargaining session, every committee. Like it, it became kind of a second job, but one that I wanted to go to. Like I was going to way more union meetings than I was going to heavy metal shows. And I'd always been interested in people's history and, you know, in labor stuff. And because just I'm a curious person, I'm, I'm interested in, in people's history. But I, since I spent my whole life in the music world, I didn't think I really had any credibility to write about it. It was only after I got, I kind of lived through it, through that organizing process myself and learned more about the laws and learned from the organizers I was working with and just kind of dove in head first. I realized like, wow, I think maybe this is what I want to write about now. And now that I've done it and I have a little bit of credibility there, maybe I can let myself try. And I have to really shout out Teen Vogue for giving me a shot uh, they were one of the first places I wrote about labor for, and they gave me a column like four years ago. And they really gave me kind of a, a launch pad to to try it out, try out my voice. And it's really just been the most incredible thing. And it's really cool to finally be writing about stuff that my dad understands. Because when I was mm-hmm. doing my death metal stuff, he was like, uh, okay, just don't ask me for money. But now I'm like, hey, dad, <laughs> somebody from your union came to my book launch. And he was like, oh, all right. <laughs> so what's been some of your like most standout moments from your reporting? So I've spent this past like two years, I guess, writing this book. But this whole past year, I've been going back and forth to Alabama to cover this coal miner strike in Brookwood. And it is entering its second year. It hasn't gotten a ton of attention. And I've become so close and so invested with so many of the folks there in a way that I wasn't really expecting. I kind of stumbled upon the strike almost on accident because I was previously covering uh, efforts to organize an Amazon warehouse in Bessemer up the road. But these coal miners went out on strike on April 1st. And it's just such a classic case of the boss is not playing fair. Like they're trying to organize to bargain a new contract. Negotiations broke down. And they went out on strike and they didn't expect to be out for so long, but they're still there. And they're there because they have really built this beautiful community that's really been kind of held together by the women and retirees of the auxiliary who have been feeding people and showing up to support other unions and doing interviews and really just doing everything they can. And it's such an interesting story. And it's, there's so many different you know, layers to it. Like this is a very rural, blue collar, deep South group of workers, uh, pretty diverse and, you know, multiracial, multigender, a lot of different political views. And uh, there's literally people that I met earlier on who would have told me like, oh, I'm like a conservative Christian Republican voter for Trump. I'm like, mm, okay, well, it's okay. We'll we'll talk about the other stuff for now. But now some of those exact same people are like socialists, like tweeting about Eugene Deb. Like they've seen the way that I, that people have changed their perspective because they've seen who shows up for them, who's writing stories about them, who's donating money. It's not, you know, Tommy Tuberville and Mo Brooks. It's like the DSA and like local progressive groups and labor people from around the country. I think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned there. And I just always got to shout out my boys in Alabama because, you know, even if no one else is paying attention, like I'm not going to give up on them. Mm. So in Fight Like Hell, you quote a garment worker who participated in the fair manufacturing company strike in the 1970s. And she said, why did I put up with it all these years? Why didn't I try for something else? What's the power of the shift in that perspective? It's utterly transformative to go from thinking, you know, oh, I don't have any power. I'm just here trying to make my paycheck. Like I can't make any waves. Like I'll just get fired. Going from that perspective, which a lot of people are kind of stuck in, because why wouldn't they be? Like, we've been placed in this position by people with much more power than we we have. But going from me to we, 
going from thinking of yourself as one little tiny cog in the machine to realizing, oh, me and my coworkers are the only reason this whole machine works. Just the, that shift in thinking of, oh, it's just me, like I can't do anything to, oh, it's a whole bunch of us and we can do anything. Like I remember that experience when I first became involved in the union of ICE. I never thought of myself as someone who could join a union because I was like, well, I just write about heavy metal on the internet. There's not like a union for that. But it turns out there was. And being able to really just understand and internalize my, just like my identity as a worker, as someone who is part of this movement, as someone who can and do, and deserves to fight for something better and to fight for my coworkers and to build something that'll help people that come after me. There are a lot of ways that people talk about being empowered, but there is no more powerful feeling than sitting across from your boss and telling him, oh, that's not good enough. Do better. Mm. Love that. And then where are you headed next? Like what's next for you and your research? What's happening? Oh my God, I'm going to be promoting the book for a little while. And I want to write like a hundred more books. And I really want to hopefully do something about the coal miners in Alabama, because Alabama is such a fascinating place with such a rich history, especially in labor. Like it pops up in the book a lot. But I think there are parts of the country that get written off by people that maybe don't know as much about it or they think about stereotypes or they had a bad experience. And like every place in this country, there's some kind of labor action happening, some kind of organizing happening. And I want to know about everything. I want to know about all of it. So I guess I'm just going to keep running around, poking my nose into people's business and hopefully unearth more of these worker stories because like it's the greatest honor of my life to be able to act as a microphone for the workers because, you know, the workers are going to win. I'm not sure when, I'm not entirely sure how, but I know they're going to win. Mm. Kim Kelly, thank you so much for your work and for your time and your scholarship. We appreciate you so much. And thank you for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you so much. Honestly, just solidarity forever. Yeah. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Kim Kelly. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thanks so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousWithJVN. Our socials are run and curated by Middle Seat Digital. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Gatto, and Zara Krim. 